Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. I'm the publisher on Agenda Media and I'm with my Agenda Media co-founder, Tyla Lambert. Hello, Tyla. Hi, Ange. On this week's agenda, Barnaby's Rejoice, Where's My Vaccine? And is childcare outsourcing parenting? The short answer there is no, but we'll have a discussion about it. Thank you for listening. Hi, Tyler. I feel like a lot has happened in the past 10 days since we spoke on this podcast. And it was, I know we say that every time, but this week particularly, because I don't think we imagined a lockdown would have been occurring at that point. And we certainly didn't know that Barnaby Joyce would be back as Deputy Prime Minister. No, I know. What a thrill that is. I was feeling very optimistic that we wouldn't go into another lockdown, but here we are. Um, But how are things going with you? All good. All good. I'm in my car outside my house. Uh, so this is the quietest location. It works. I've done a few things in my car of late. You're in proper Not due lockdown. to any kind of lockdown order, just due to my own disorganisation and the fact that it happens to be a really good place to come in and do some quiet work. So it works. So we should start with a win. What is your win this week? Oh, my win has to be um, one that came out of Wimbledon yesterday where Dame Sarah Gilbert, who was the co-creator of the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, she received a standing ovation at the opening on the opening night. Um, and it was just such a heartwarming reel to see and especially when we're all feeling a little bit glum at the moment um, just to remember the thousands of people who have been on the front line of this pandemic and have really worked towards you know, finding solutions and and getting us out of a crisis. Um, And it was also just so interesting to see because obviously the AstraZeneca vaccine in Australia is still really treated with such um, reluctance and wariness uh, because of that very kind of rare link to blood clots. Um, But in the UK, it really is lauded as a lifesaver and she is... Um, regarded as a hero as she as she should be and her reaction um, to that ovation was just so beautiful because she just looked she looked so shocked um, and then you know really teary as well and and it was um it was just such a beautiful thing to see so we've got a, a quick piece up on site today with that video link there and I encourage anyone who is looking for a bit of a pick-me-up to go and look at it. I just uh, think about the work that Dame Sarah Gilbert has achieved and other people in similar roles like her have achieved during this period. It is, makes me feel so good for humanity <laughs> just to think that, you know, we didn't even know that this virus existed 18 months ago. We had never heard the term COVID-19 before. I still remember the day sitting at my desk that I first heard a new snippet about, you know, this mystery virus that had come up in, in, in Wuhan in, in China. And to think that now how far we have come to the point that we now have vaccines available, that we've had vaccines available, well, for months <laughs> And we've got a number of different vaccinations available. And in places like the UK and the United States, they've reached an incredible, I think, over 45% fully vaccination rate, which is so impressive to think about the scale of not only the development of these vaccines, but actually rolling out these vaccines as well. And how, you know, I see it from friends in the UK and the US about 
how they have entered a summer that is obviously very different to last summer. There are still surges of COVID in places and it's interesting to see the stats of, um, you know, you see the COVID rates are surging but the death rates are um, decreasing and there also is a huge correlation in terms of hospitalisation and that death rate with people who are unvaccinated which is, which is a tragedy in itself because there is obviously, um, you know, some suggestions that there is a preventable mechanism that, that um, is available in many cases to people. So it's so great to see her get that standing ovation and to see her emotional response. And I love that, you know, I shouldn't mention her, her status as a parent, but she's a mother of triplets. That is so cool. <laughs> I know. Anyone that can get anything done. Let alone come up with a, a, you know, a vaccination for COVID. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so my win is related, but on a very different note, and it is a little bit controversial. So there are obviously some very, very mixed views on New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian at the moment, um, especially regarding the delay in calling from a, for a Sydney-wide lockdown. And especially from states um, other than New South Wales, particularly where, you know, obviously COVID cases have crept across borders through whatever means that have occurred there. And so, you know, that, that suggestion again that that Sydney lockdown should have happened earlier. What I will count as a minor win from uh, Gladys Berejiklian is that uh, despite the Liberal Party lines, that she is speaking out about the diabolical vaccine rollout in Australia, that, you know, it might be a little bit subtle, <laughs> But she is voicing the frustrations. I mean, a comment from her yesterday, she said, you have to plan for the weeks and months ahead. I'm getting frustrated that people are not doing that at other levels. We need to play ahead for the future. So I, she's directly calling out the Morrison government there. Not that subtle, is it? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. It's not that subtle. Okay. <laughs> that other level. Well, she doesn't name that government. So yeah. <laughs> subtle but in fairness, I mean, like, she should be frustrated. She should be furious. The federal government could not get its act together to properly roll out this vaccination. And there have been a myriad hurdles along the way um, and, and botches from Greg Hunt and from Scott Morrison in the sense of, you know, advising people to hold off on getting the, the vaccination altogether. You know, the fact that they have been, like they didn't order enough vaccinations either and yes, Berejiklian probably should have shut down the state a few days prior. Um, but I also think it's a really it's a really difficult kind of decision to make as a premier um, to do that. So I don't really want to you know point the finger too hard at her because I, I think that there are always complexities at play. I think it's a, a challenging um, it's a challenging decision. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, look, I'm not surprised that she's finally kind of speaking up. She has kind of held the Liberal Party line up until this point and, and she's tried to protect the government and not kind of label them directly um, as at fault. But, yeah, I mean, look, her frustration is pretty palpable when she, when she said that. Um, but I do hope that come the next election people do remember that this has happened as well. Yeah, I mean, I hope that people remember that really the federal government took on one job, <laughs> one key job, and a vaccination rollout is like the job that you probably want to take on because it is the way out, it is the path out of this mess. So I think like that's the one thing that you can see as being 
the, the key thing that can really give you some credit, right, is a vaccine rollout and getting it right. And I know that, you know, we saw even Donald Trump tried to take um, ownership of some of that last year, um, not so well, and the vaccine has, has sped up under the, the Biden administration significantly. But, yeah, vaccination is a glory job, I might call it, in terms of rolling totally. It's the only path out of this. We, yeah. we, we have no path out of this. We have no open borders. We have no opportunity to be reunited with our family and friends overseas. No opportunity for the um, international tourism market to come out, for the education market to come back to what it was. We've got nothing. We are a hermit kingdom for as long as we have a failed vaccination program, which we currently have. Just 4.75% of Australians are fully vaccinated. We are the last of the race of OECD nations. That is absolutely pathetic, especially when you consider the fact that we've had an okay run. You know, we had a perfect, clean opportunity to do everything possible to make this happen, given we weren't kind of dealing and struggling with the COVID numbers at the time. Of course, the argument could be that's why the vaccination didn't program didn't speed up. But we, we had everything at our disposal to, to make it work other than the actual doses of the vaccine. No, there is no excuse for how they've handled this and how they've botched it so, so badly. Um, and look, the rest of the world are looking at us like we are failures at this point and they should do. You know, I just I just don't think there's any excuse. And, and we have focused a lot on how Australia has done so well throughout this, throughout the pandemic, throughout the last 18 months. And that's true, but it's also, you know, largely attributed to state leaders and not the federal government. The federal government's job was this vaccination rollout, which they have really effed up. Um, and I am livid, as I'm sure most Australians are at this point. You and I are both under 40. We both have, I guess we have no reason to have been um, put ahead of the queue on the vaccine, which is understandable. You know, we, um, we're we not a frontline worker. Um, we, we don't have a disability. We, we are not in a family home of somebody who's a frontline worker. So I get that, but I have to say that I am feeling very, very frustrated that so far the opportunity hasn't been there for those who are under 40 in, in a similar position to us to, to go and at least book appointments to get vaccinated. There are a huge, huge and significant part of the, com the population and many epidemiologists would argue we are also the key component of the the population that actually needs to get this vaccine in order to halt the spread of the virus given where you know th these age groups are more likely to be moving around a lot and associating with others yes and if that wasn't enough to make you angry um you know the fact that we have leaders coming into our midst who have also been there previously and who have stuffed things up royally already um they're making their their classic comeback that's a another kind of frustration and bugbear for me yes. at the moment. Well, let's um, get to that in yes. 10 seconds. I want to make one final point. Scott <laughs> Morrison went to the G7. He took a little side trip to do some family history investigations. He went down to Cornwell um, and, you know, the reports were that was on his schedule for weeks despite it being not disclosed to the media that that was on his schedule. And at the same time, you know, Scott Morrison, fully vaccinated, fair call. He needed to get those pictures. We needed to see him getting vaccinated. But going and taking that trip, again, I just find 
so blood boiling to have heard <laughs> that he took that trip, especially oh. when he took that trip to Hawaii. He took that trip in the face of saying that, you know, Australians in the UK still can't come home, that nobody should be travelling over, all of that. And then today on the front page of The Australian, I might just point out Matthias Corman with his old mate Joe Hockey drinking beers together in Paris. Anyway, I know. Barnaby Joyce. <laughs> Just to keep going with our rant, let's move on to Barnaby. <laughs> all right. We all know Barnaby Joyce is back. He is a head of, the leader of the Nationals again. He making him Deputy Prime Minister again. And uh, he comes to that after stepping down from the leadership of the Nats back in 2018 over a sexual harassment complaint, uh, which he, I should say, strenuously denies. So, yes, he's back. And that's just magic, isn't it? Because we all love a bit of Barnaby action and he's just such a progressive forward-thinking leader, um, which is exactly what we need right now, you know? And the team he's put in place as well is just amazing. We've got Bridget McKenzie back too, who's faced so far pretty much zero consequence for her hand in the sports rorts saga and Madeline Hislop wrote a really good piece for us this week around the notion of consequences for this government and how you know so many of parliament's leaders are are kind of getting away with blue murder at this point there really isn't any kind of accountability in place and so far any allegations of corruption or sexual harassment have gone pretty much unnoticed and unresolved so that's great but Barnaby's also on the uh, women's task force which was <laughs> an interesting development well I mean he clearly has the the merit to be on that task force that's I mean of course he should be there right mm. I mean yes it just kind of just shows the complete lack of any credibility that task force now has and that task force was an essential component in uh, the Morrison government's attempt to um, improve its standing with women, um, particularly over the, the multiple issues that it's had this year and, and after you know, thousands of people marched across different cities in Australia declaring enough and declaring more, this was one of the solutions. This was pretty much the key solution that they came up with was this this women's task force. And we, we never really knew what it was set to achieve. There was a few kind of vague ideas of what it would would hope to do um we do know that you know having a pro uh life uh lifer on there in amanda stoker who has attended you know anti-abortion rallies uh, as has barnaby joyce um you know already having her there already kind of put into question the credibility of this task force but Barnaby Joyce's presence there, I mean, completely makes a shambles of it and it's a complete and utter joke and what a waste of time and what a, um offensive and patronising way to treat the women of Australia to say that this task force is out there doing its job when it puts Barnaby Joyce on there. And let's be clear that Barnaby Joyce is there as a quota. It was, you know, kind of a given that, you know, apparently the head of the Nationals had to also be on this, uh, this task force just as... Um, Mm. the head of the Liberals is on the task force, it was only fair that they should be there. He's a quota. So when they talk about quotas again in the future, let's just... It's all about meritocracy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, he's he's Deputy Prime Minister as a quota. Mm -hmm. Bridget um, McKenzie is there as, as a quota. I mean, it just goes to show how 
utterly, you know, tone deaf and 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 just blind they are to the problem at hand. Um, and that is, I think that's the crux of the problem itself is the fact that no one actually knows, you know, what women in this country are calling out for and why we're so frustrated um, and and fed up with the way that we are treated in this country. Um, and no one in, in that women's task force understands, no one in the government at present understands. And while that's the case, how can we ever expect that anything is going to change? Um, and, and yeah, Barnaby Joyce is just case in point. Like that is outrageous from, from the Morrison government. Yeah. I mean, to his credit, I would say that maybe he didn't have a choice. Uh, like I go back, I go back to the, the quota situation, but I, I kind of think that, yeah, maybe they could have done some negotiations behind the scenes and have just said, you know, yeah, just this isn't someone work. else in from the National yeah, Party. We'll pick someone else. <laughs> someone else in from the National Party. Like, <laughs> come on. Um, yes. Okay. So I might note that with Bridget McKenzie back on the front bench, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has issued a statement saying that his cabinet will have the highest female representation of any Australian government. His quote, however, it is not about the size of the female contingent in my cabinet, but the skills and the experience mm-hmm. they all bring to help us solve our nation's challenge. Mm. There we go. Yeah. All right. Speaking of skills and experience and still on politics, sorry, this is a total politics rant this episode, but, you know, it's kind of warranted over the past uh, week. If you are listening for the first time, I, I promise it is not all politics. Um, but let's just go to the, uh, and it is related to Barnaby Joyce as well, but the cabinet meeting, um, sorry, the coalition party room meeting that occurred this week regarding childcare subsidies. So it seems that like with a few, you know, people, uh, a few MPs now have a little bit more power and a little bit more say over these issues and not so keen on some of the changes to childcare subsidies that are designed to support more working parents. And what we heard was that a male MP stated that working women are outsourcing parenting when they look at childcare. Yeah. Hard to know where to start with this. Um, So (laughs) I, especially, you know, when we've got some you know, people, have, those in Melbourne who've been in lockdown the few weeks before Sydney siders and now Sydney siders in lockdown, often with young kids at home and trying to manage work as well, which is it's very interesting. Thing. And I, I, love that the, I love that this comment came from an MP who said women were outsourcing parenting as well. Mm-hmm. Like surely, yeah. surely that just underscores well, there's no the, men involved. In yeah, no, for no. sure. Not yeah. fathers. Fathers aren't parents. No, no, no. <laughs> it's such a joke. It is such a joke. And especially at a time, as you say, you know, when so many families have been carrying double loads, triple loads um, over the last 18 months, kind of trying to navigate homeschooling and careers and life um, to to have those words said by a politician um, who, you know, I would argue probably doesn't have a huge hand in their own family if they do have one. Um, we don't actually know who who made those comments. They haven't. It hasn't been disclosed, but my bet would be on that. Um, I just think, it, yeah, it is ridiculous. And, um, and again, it just it, – 
like they just don't get it. They do not understand why people, families and and women are calling for, you know, universal childcare, why that will be a game changer in this country, why we need it, you know, and it's it's about having children properly educated. Um, it's about, you know, relieving families and enabling women to work when they want to work um, and, you know, everyone to live life in the way that that best meets their needs. And, um, and, it, and it's also just going to be a huge economic driver and boost. I mean, it goes back to the thing, I mean, in, in the interview that I did with Bree Lee that we had on the podcast last week, um, she spoke about the fact that her one wish around the education system, if she could, you know, magically change one thing, and she was so clear um, and concise with this, it would be to reframe the idea of it as childcare and to just completely see it as early childhood education and that it should be so that we give children up until the age of five the best possible start in life and that we we remove any stigma associated with that form of, of care at that point. To, to note that it's, it is critical, essential education that enables children that sets them off on a path for later on. So I just think that, you know, and we, we're calling it childcare here and I feel like, you know, maybe we're partly responsible for that as well, that we all need to really think about this as early childhood education and really push um, any government figure, whatever party to, and um, anyone in politics to see it as early childhood education instead. Also the issue of, and we've got a great piece on our site about this um, from uh, the University of Melbourne and Latrobe University, that noting that, you know, mothers also in this modern day environment are like really doing a lot of intensive parenting as well that, that actually wasn't done in the past, that a lot of parents are really expected to be providing this very one-on-one expert-guided time-intensive care to children. A lot of parents are doing that despite the fact that they're also working full-time. And you see some of the studies uh, that look at, um, say, women uh, in, in you know, over the past 10 years compared to women 50 years ago. When you, you think about the, the one-on-one time that it's given to children, that actually at the moment there's a lot more one-on-one time occurring despite the fact that more women are, are in the workforce at the same point. So it's actually not possible to provide that intensive parenting all the time. There's also obviously the need for this early childhood education for for care and and learning outside of the family home and socialising and all that kind of thing. Um, And also the fact that, you know, dads are parents too. As a mum who has put her baby in in, um, early childhood education from when he was six months old um, and he was in there one day a week, but I have just noticed the most, you know, colossal change in his in how he has evolved as a, as a little person and, you know, how he is navigating the world and, um, you know, how he responds to people and how he takes things in. And I think that it should absolutely be up to parents to make that decision, you know, what, what makes sense for their family unit. If they feel comfortable putting their, their child in, in early ch- childhood education, then, then great. If not also great. Um, but, I just think that this government is just not recognizing the the seismic benefits to to what that means um and you know how that prepares kids um for later life as well and and later education. Well, I think that's everything Tala. Yes, that was a ranty episode. Um 
But I hope, you know, people enjoy a rant. And no interview this week. We do usually have an interview, so we'll return to that next week. And once, uh, like I said midway through this episode as well, it's not all usually about politics. It just happened to be this week and kind of everything's political, I guess, anyway. So, yeah. Yes, I think this week it's uh, it's justified. <laughs> it is. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that all the stories we've discussed and more can be accessed at our website, womensagenda.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter so you get these stories in your inbox uh, just as they're happening, just as they're breaking, and just before lunchtime every day. You can also go and check out our second podcast, The Leadership Lessons. Go and search for it on wherever you listen to your podcasts, subscribe, leave a review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks very much.